and welcome back to the Forget the Wine podcast, Reclaiming the Book Club. Remember when book clubs were actually about books? Madeline and I were tired of the book club being portrayed as a thinly veiled ladies wine night in popular culture, so we decided to fight this bastardization ourselves. Join us as we examine and interpret modern novels. And okay, if you want to drink a glass of wine while you listen, we won't judge you. Well, we won't audibly judge you. I'm Madeline. I'm coming to you from Manali in the mountains of northern India. Luckily, have a really crisp view of the mountains this morning on a beautiful day. And I'm joined by my friend, Laura, who is in a very different time zone than I am. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We're recording this much later than I am used to here, so we'll see if it gets a little loopy. (laughs) Great. And it's super early for me, so it's going to be a really interesting discussion. Great, and today we're going to be talking about My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Atessa Moshbeck. Laura, do you want to get us started with a synopsis of the novel? Sure, this is the publisher's synopsis. From one of our boldest, most celebrated new literary voices, a novel about a young woman's efforts to duck the ills of the world by embarking on an extended hibernation with the help of one of the worst psychiatrists in the annals of literature and the battery of medicines she prescribes. Our narrator should be happy, shouldn't she? She's young, thin, pretty, a recent Columbia graduate. She works an easy job at a hip art gallery, lives in an apartment on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, paid for, like the rest of her needs, by her inheritance. But there is a dark and vacuous hole in her heart, and it isn't just the loss of her parents, or the way her Wall Street boyfriend treats her, or her sadomasochistic relationship with her best friend Rita. It's the year 2000 in a city of glitter with wealth and possibility. What could go so terribly wrong? What could go so terribly wrong? (laughs) And I guess I can add some specificity to the plot here, because I think when I originally read probably this publisher's synopsis, it sounded like much more of a whimsical, conceptual novel than it is. She does hibernate, but there's no like mysticism or magic here. She's literally taking barbiturates and sleeping pills and anti-anxiety medication to sleep for three days at a time, basically knock herself out and then come to and then re-self-medicate. So it is, there's no like magical realism or anything that I um, suspected from reading the summaries. It is all drug-induced real-world comas um, with the help of a person psychiatrist who is willingly overprescribing her medication. This is a protagonist who is really trying to erase herself. She's trying to erase her brain. And the psychiatrist she finds is very loopy herself. So she's more than happy to prescribe all of these really dangerous medication samples without really thinking about how they're going to mix together. And actually, I found in a lot of reviews I read, and Atessa talks about a lot of, in a lot of interviews, people seem to really respond to the therapist character of Dr. Tuttle and have a lot of either a lot of interest in that uh, peripheral character or Atessa Mushbeck said she's actually been asked in interviews how she did the research on this novel's medications by people who sounded like they were interested in trying something themselves. So she said that was deeply disturbing. The character is 
really, yeah, I agree, Laura. It doesn't have very whimsical tone. It has a very apathetic, detached tone in many ways. And I think that's also why it's been compared to a lot of Brett Easton Ellis's work and that the narrator, she's going through this deeply emotional process, but she's very, very, very detached and apathetic to even like the emotions that she's going through. Yeah, and her goal in hibernating is to break up, wake up renewed, wake up and feel something different or be in a different world. Basically, she's seeking change through just numbing everything out. And so our narrative is is pretty small. We really do follow the unnamed main character, our narrator, as she floats in and out of consciousness over the course of a year. She watches VHS tapes from the 90s since this is set in the year 2000 in her apartment and then we hear some like remembrances of her abusive ex-boyfriend who she still calls when she's drunk and then really our only other major character is her friend Riva who is just painted as very shallow and into fashion and her looks and she's very heavily bulimic um, and that's brought up in about every scene and weight obsessed and Riva and our narrator really can't stand each other there doesn't seem to be any real love between them but um, as the synopsis said they're kind of in this sadomasochistic weird relationship symbiotic relationship where um they can't really find anybody else to spend time with them or indulge in their misery with each other. So um, they seem to be clinging on to each other as they circle the drain a little bit. Definitely. The role of the characterization in, in this novel, it's a very character-driven novel, was one of the first things we wanted to discuss as part of the themes this this female protagonist and Mashvek has gotten a lot of different responses based on her both female characters this one and Eileen which was her previous novel that was also very successful I also wanted to throw in this quote that summarizes the novel from the New York Times review the unnamed heroine of Atessa's Mashvek's new novel my year of rest and relaxation is kind of a brand ambassador for NUE she is tall thin and blonde and pretty and young her own words and dislikes nearly everyone and everything as if she has rolled a condom onto her heart. <laughs> it's, just like, it's an interesting uh, the graphic New York times, but I think that's, that's kind of a good summary that she has totally detached herself from compassion for other humans. Yeah, this is definitely one of the meaner, more selfish characters that has led a novel that I've read in recent memory. She has no compassion. For example, when Riva, her ostensibly her best friend's mother, ends up dying, our main character acts like it's a huge burden to travel upstate for her funeral. And when she arrives at Riva's house and sees all the mourning family, she's disgusted by everyone and just wants a place to lie down and take a nap and like imposes upon Riva and isn't able to like be empathetic with her grief at all. Uh, she also 
calls her ex-boyfriend and pretends that she's just been sexually assaulted so that he'll come over and comfort her. Like, she is definitely an anti-heroine uh, in, in this book for sure. So kind of how did you think she was successful as a character? I'm sure you agree that maybe she wasn't the most upstanding citizen in the world, but how did you take her in the reading? For me... I think, and this is a trend we've seen across all media, the anti-hero has been popular. But I think the reason I responded to this narrator was because even though she's a horrible person, we also see some insight into her upbringing with really cold, distant parent. Her father is really, really cold and distant. She's an orphan by now, um, and her mother has committed suicide. And she is just floating through the world with no sense of purpose. And so she, you can see she has a lot of disdain for the world around her, but she also, I think she hates herself so much that she just wants to like race her life and start over as a new person. So even though she's, she does so, so many disdainful things, to me, it seemed like she was on this quest for enlightenment without realizing it so I chose to focus on those but I think you had a different interpretation and also I think that your reading of the character is what Moshbag intended looking at the yeah um, at her quotes I was just gonna say you saying that she is searching for enlightenment I think is like light shining out of you and onto this character because I do not feel a hungriness for knowledge or evolution or growth from her anywhere on the page I did find her irredeemable and I think the way she is written is supposed to be like morally repugnant and just not somebody who is able to sympathize with characters at all I mean she fantasizes about killing her mother in the book like uh, she's just cruel to everyone so to me her background uh, wasn't compelling for me just because there was so much negativity and I was just frustrated page after page of being forced to spend time with this character yeah and it's so funny because in interviews people will try to be like oh, so you're painting it as a satire or this is a response to people's reactions to Eileen? Because in Eileen, her previous novel, her character is also pretty repugnant, but she's really, she sees herself as really ugly. She has goes into great description about her laxatives and bowel movements. And in reality, the character isn't actually ugly. It's just her whole self-obsession with like, and her sexual repression and, and people were just really like averse to that character. So some people say that Moshveg wrote this unnamed protagonist in my year of rest and relaxation as a reaction to that. But I think Moshveg actually started with this character before even it's not necessarily a reaction. Cause she said she was staying on the upper East side in New York city and just observing the people and this character sort of came to her and she also says I had the character first this really unhappy spoiled young woman who I liked I liked her judgmentalness and her superiority it was fun to occupy her mind space what she kept telling me was that she just wanted out and she did not want to participate in the bullshit so the premise revealed itself through the character 
And I think that ultimately breaks down whether you are going to enjoy this ride or not. Like if you can find something to like about a character like that. And for me, that was too much of a hill to get over. And I do think this work has to like stand on its own without being a reaction to her previous work to be able to, um, you know, evaluate it in and of itself. But it is interesting that she wrote, you know, a, a similarly repugnant character previously. Yeah. And I think this does. I don't think this, I agree. I, yeah. Yeah. Because in fiction now, there are starting to be more mainstream stories told about women and from women's perspectives. And I think slowly, but hopefully surely, people are starting to focus less on the role of gender and the woman and more on like the story and what the author is trying to say. Yeah, seems to me in a book like this that is so left of center from what we usually read and especially if a female protagonist somebody who is so much more irredeemable and cruel I think a lot of times readers and reviewers there's some cognitive dissonance there that they have to find a reason that it's so different than their usual experience so I think that's when we get comments like oh well it's a satire on this or it's a commentary on how women can't be difficult and complicated and to me like maybe that works when we're examining this book in the context of like all the other books that came out in 2019 but I don't think any of that is on the page like to be a satire I think that there has to be (laughs) some some criticism weaved in there um and there's not she's just written as a straight ahead terrible person yeah she's and she uh says that like blatantly in an interview for I think it's Waterstones she says it's not a satire like you can't read it that simply and just to give you, I found this, okay, I'm not going to say I'm obsessed with the Tessa Moshfeg, but I spent a really long time reading reviews about her and interviews, and because she fascinates me as a writer. And, Is um, it because you, are, like, relate to what she says and <laughs> love it, or are just interested in it, or? I think I kind of love that she is so no bullshit she's so she seems to have and and she doesn't ever overtly say it but she also seems to have some underlying spirituality driving her like she maybe not doesn't even call it that but like okay Laura I have watched so many interviews and she just is so single-minded and focused and driven by this dream and like she has worked so hard as a writer (laughs) but the thing that I, I guess I don't really relate with, and it reflects in this novel with this character, is that she has a true disdain for the people around her. Like when she was talking about her, she got an MFA at Brown, I think, and she was saying that it was a stupid program because people who don't know how to write are telling you giving you feedback on your work it's just like a waste of time (laughs) yeah she's yeah so for me it's kind of funny because we just had this whole conversation about Sally Rooney and her status as a celebrity and I was thinking okay Otessa Moshbeck is who Sally Rooney wishes she could be but she's too self she's too aware of like what people think of her whereas Otessa Moshbeck has a very fuck you attitude 
and she's ready to fight you on things and she's ready to like stick up for her work and she's not going to apologize for any creative choices that she's made. And just to give you a little summary, she, this was in an interview that she did with Slate. He asks, so when did you write your first short story? I remember writing my first short story when I was 14. What was it about? It was about a person who knocks on her neighbor's door and kills him because he was playing the TV too loud. He says, was this based on a true story? No, I think I can remember the first few lines. It was something like, I killed a man today. He was fat and ugly and deserved to die. So yeah, that was it. So this is a story she wrote when she was 14. And that doesn't feel like (laughs) Sally Rooney constructed to say something very specific about her to you. Not a leading question. (laughs) No, I, well, because, okay, just looking at her whole body of work and the, and just seeing her demeanor in interviews as well and her demeanor in some of the readings, like um, the way she presents herself and the way she answers questions and addresses people. I think that for a while she's been driven by ego. Like she's been very, in these interviews, she's approached it with very, a lot of egocentricity. And that's a thing that happens with many writers, actually, both male and female, because you kind of have to have a big ego to be able to put your work out there. So fearlessly, you have to be able to stand behind what you're saying 150%, especially when you're putting out material and content that's trying to make an artistic statement or something that doesn't fit in with a mainstream mentality. So it makes sense that she's come out. But I think, okay, I also have a theory that she had a very large trauma in her life in the last couple of years. Her brother passed away. And since that time... I think there's been kind of a shift in her tone in interviews and reviews and the way she approaches her work. She seems a little less like you're saying, do you think she's trying to create this image? Right. She seems a little less focused on like this fuck you image, this against the system image. She seems a little bit more rounded, I guess, and more still very serious about her work, but less egocentric. This is all 100% my personal theory, by the way. So yeah, I and I don't feel and I don't feel super comfortable like for me reading into her character what she's trying to put out there. I think I was too got too deep into the weeds in terms of Sally Rooney as an author versus focusing on the work. But I will say the quote that you read from. Moshfag on the first story she wrote when she was young of like he was ugly and fat and he deserved to die it's I think that that actually is a, is a fairly apt transition into one of the things that really I think was a an intentional theme in this book and b made it extremely difficult for me to read and enjoy is all the focus on really relentless focus on beauty being thin dressing well on on visual beauty and I think it casts the writing casts beauty thinness and wealth as inherently virtuous and one of the quotes is is why she chose to make the main character so beautiful even though she's this character who is very like lazy she doesn't want to work she doesn't want to engage with anyone socially she just wants to sleep through life 
uh, many people were asking her, like, why did you choose to make this such a beautiful, thin, traditionally gorgeous character? And Mosh Fegg said, when you're beautiful, to have life go wrong must feel so much more disappointing. And, like, not to be Pollyanna-ish about it, because I understand that she is one of those people who has the attitude of, like, well, that's the world, baby. We love thinness, and if you can't deal, get out of here. But to me, somebody who comes from the viewpoint of being thin and blonde and tall is inherently a virtue and thus will make your life better and easier and like wow it's crazy if that person messes up is just not a worldview that I'm interested in taking in and it's all over this book and I think some of it is supposed to be heightened and done for effect especially uh, the bulimia that's a focus but some of it seems from genuinely a place where like waif thinness has been truly a value and a virtue and something that is almost more valuable than anything else and there's a sincerity to that in the writing that really bothered me you know I could definitely I I think that is a big issue with the novel and it's something that I didn't necessarily pick up on at first because I was focusing on the side of the character that's more meant to be grading on on the the reader. I think this is a trend that we see in a lot of arts, both visual and literature, because that happens in Sally Rooney's work as well. The characters become very waifish. Um, her female characters become very thin as they go through things, and it gets tied in with their intellectualism as well with their intellectualism and to make their pain and dysfunction more palatable yeah they might be really screwed up and taking pills and being undressed around whoever but they're still thin and beautiful and you can see their collarbones like i don't know it was just (laughs) gross um yeah i think that is a pretty big flaw Yeah, there's a quote from The New Yorker specifically referring to um, this book and comparing it to her previous work, Eileen, in which, as I haven't read it, but it sounded like the character was more written as outwardly ugly. And like you said, like there's just more graphic descriptions about her body and her (laughs) hygiene, everything like that. So the New Yorker, comparing it to that previous work, says, In my year of rest and relaxation, she, the author, builds a facade of beauty and privilege around her characters, forcing the reader to locate repulsion somewhere deeper. Like, it just really bummed me out that it would be easier for us to identify repulsion based on a physical description than from our main character who was literally so mean and cruel and shits on her friend after she lost her mom and the idea that that cruelty and that repulsion is something deeper down that we have to look closer for than like someone being overweight and unshaven or whatever uh, is just a bummer and I feel like this book like that tone is really inherent to the writing and it reinforces it intentionally yeah and well her first character Eileen is actually super anorexic she's obviously has like a really serious eating disorder and also is addicted to laxatives as a way to not to to lose weight and is obsessed with her body 
but for some reason this, yeah, people don't really focus on the, I don't think people really focused on the eating disorder, body dysmorphia part of the novel. They were just like, ew, she's icky. Yeah. (laughs) um, Yeah. I mean, I do think that Moshfeg, just based on the reviews, interviews I've heard and her tone in the novel, I agree. I think that she also, she's not critiquing society's obsession with beauty. She's not critiquing it at all. She's accepting it and she's using it as a way to, yeah, soften, maybe soften her character even, or just to examine. She just chose, chose this type of person physically, just observing the world around her, chose someone superficially based on how they looked and decided to write a novel about it. And to assign value based on it, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I guess that's something that assigning value to someone based on their physical appearance is a reality of the world that we live in now. And it, I agree, it's not something that should be applauded or just taken for granted. And but for, for is, characters to do yeah. that about each other and have it be a self-aware choice by the author to make it a realistic world in which the characters are judging each other that's one thing and and this is 100% a personal preference but like that's not what's a fun Thursday afternoon by the pool for me is to read a book where the narrator has that Mm -hmm. um, judgment in them or like the omniscient writer has that like that is a bummer to me I think we can yeah there's racism in the world but do I want to read a book that's racist like no I'm not trying to equate those Mm -hmm. things at all but yeah when I was reading when I was reading through your notes, I was like, whoa, I really didn't even, and this is kind of how fucked up maybe my mind space is, is like, I didn't even necessarily pick up on this part of the novel being taken for granted, the value that was assigned inherently. I was more focusing on the character's actions towards Riva, her focused on the desire to be empty and void of all feeling void of all emotion I was really intrigued by like that part of the novel and those themes and the parts where she talks about her beauty and her thinness I just I guess I just sort of skimmed over it almost um yeah and I just I did so when I read your notes I was like oh yeah she did talk a lot about that. <laughs> yeah, it did jump out to me. But I do agree with you that some of those other parts of, of the book, particularly our narrator's quest to be nothing and not exist temporarily, those were part of some of the parts of the book that I thought were more well done and well articulated. So I think you really had a lot to say about the emptiness and nothingness in this book. Yeah, do you want to jump into that theme and then we can go back? I think we should still talk about her friendship with Reva. Oh, yeah, go for it. (laughs) I really loved that this element came up, that this this protagonist really has a desire to erase herself and exist in a state of nothingness. And it comes up a few times, like even her therapist, Dr. Tuttle, brings it up when she says, we're mostly empty space, we're mostly nothing, tra-la-la. And we're all the same nothingness, you and me just filling the space with nothingness. And she talks, has a few imagery moments where she looks into her own eyes in the mirror and she just sees empty space where her pupils are, twin caves of infinite nothingness. And I guess the reason this stuck out to me, maybe, probably, is because I've been studying a lot of Buddhism here and there's a 
big big theme in Buddhism about the fact that we're inherently empty. And this realization is able to unite us and bring us a lot of peace. So for me, it made sense that she was kind of on this quest to erase the emotion and drama from her life. But I think she was going at it from a very, it wasn't an actual quest for enlightenment. It wasn't a healthy quest. She wasn't trying to transcend her emotions in a healthy way. She was trying to completely erase herself and repress everything. And she was trying to not feel anything. And actually there's a scene where she's in Reva's house during Reva's mother's funeral, um, where she's trying to take a nap. And she says, I felt nothing. I could think of feelings, emotions, but I couldn't bring them up in me. I couldn't even locate where my emotions came from. My brain? It made no sense. Irritation was what I knew best. A heaviness on my chest, a vibration in my neck like my head was revving up before it would rocket off my body. But that seemed directly tied to my nervous system, a physiological response. Was sadness the same kind of thing? Was joy? Was longing? Was love? So, I, and I don't think that Moshevik was trying to make her a psychopath, like a, what's it called? The person who has no feelings or empathy, a yeah, sociopath. sociopath. I don't think she was trying to make this character a sociopath. I think that she was really taking this character and this character just had a longing to just like completely erase herself. That part of the novel really intrigued me. And then in the end, she has this, this state where she completely embraces the whole theme and she's, essentially finds a way to sleep for three months straight by waking up once an hour, like I think for one hour every three days or something through this whole scheme with medication. And then in the end, she is just completely, she does feel empty. She does feel erased. And she says on the last day, I came to in a cross-legged seated position on living on the living room floor. Sunlight was needling through the blinds, illuminating crisscrossed planes of yellow dust that blurred and waned as I squinted. I heard a bird chirp. I was alive. And then this whole thing shifts to her self-awareness and her awareness of really existing and being alive. I read that as a hopeful thing. But I don't yeah. think that's what most necessarily intended either. I, I think the questions that this book brings up and poses like ultimately I think that thinking about the premise of this book is a lot more interesting than how it ultimately resolves like when everybody was watching Lost 10 years ago and we're like oh the numbers and everyone's theories were so much more satisfying than where it ultimately ended up going because I don't think we get much insight into what revelations our main character really had by knocking herself out for three months or what she really learned or how it changed her or how the world changed. I was pretty disappointed actually by the quote that you just read when she came to cross-legged in the living room with the sunlight and the bird. Like that just felt for, for, for a book that's so off kilter and intentionally shocking and kind of subversive in a lot of ways this character having an epiphany and feeling alive again and having that be described by feeling sunlight on your skin and hearing a chirping bird. It just felt incredibly pedestrian for all the writing that had come before it. Like it was extremely jarring for me. 
I think that's what Moshfag intended, actually. Can I read you this quote from a Jezebel interview she did about the ending? You can. <laughs> but I don't think that we, I, but I don't think we should have to have, I'm excited to hear what she has to say, but I think the work has to stand on its own without being informed by all these, you know, quotes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're right. I, but no, I want to know what little... she said. Okay. And I took a little overboard with reading into her writing and her life. And <laughs> I, before, before I read this, this part of it, I will say, I was not disappointed by this part of the ending. I actually thought it was more, I thought it was beautiful the way that she woke up and she felt this lightness and this simplicity. And the cross-legged seated position was such an important detail to me because that's the you know, the type of posture you have when you're meditating and your the straight spine and everything is supposed to be a lightning rod for spiritual energy and the fact that she could see some sunlight and that it was just very simple and very simple details and this realization I that struck me it didn't seem jarring to me it felt right to me as a reader without having read any of the stuff Moshek has to say about it well, yeah. So, I mean, I, there's okay. no way I can argue with if it felt right to you, then it works for different people in different ways. No, I'm not trying to be dismissive. <laughs> no, 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 I don't. Right, let's, okay, uh, here's what Moshvik had to say. As the author, I didn't want you to know exactly how to read it. For the last pages, I wanted you to be a little bit stunned. Like what? In a way to mimic how I think she would feel stunned after waking up from her, her consistent drug binge on the infirmitrol that's the drug she used to sleep i saw it two ways in one way she did have a transformation and the things that tortured her she's now completely divorced herself from on the other hand more literally i think she probably damaged her brain to a great extent that's why it worked she gave herself a lobotomy you aren't the same person when you wake up out of a coma parts of you have been starved and died I don't know. People ask me, what do you think her life was like when the book was over? I'm like, I have no idea. I don't really feel like she's alive. After that experiment, experience with the infirmatrol, something kind of died. And she's sort of floating through the rest of the book. Does that make any sense? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And then the author's like, oh, okay, that makes more sense to me because I had no idea what to think of the ending. And Moshveg adds, yeah, to me, it's a really sad ending. Well, that's how yeah. I read it, so I can't knock her for not communicating the point. <laughs> yeah, and I guess I didn't realize. I thought it was more of like a hopeful note, you know, but yeah. um, but no. This is how all our discussions like, come down. Like, <laughs> You're like, I didn't find it to be that dark. <laughs> <laughs> no, but... The main reason I wasn't so completely bogged down by this narrator was because I was focusing on these little flashes of what I read as spirituality in it because I was looking for it. No, but actually, I just read Less Than Zero by Brett Easton Ellis, who, and the reason I read it was because Moss Feg just wrote, I think, an introduction to a new version, or she mentioned the novel in one of her interviews, and that novel is fucked up, like absolutely irredeemable. I couldn't find a single positive piece of light in that. <laughs> That's how I felt about this. And I've read less than zero yeah. and I feel like the tone is identical for me. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because like in this one, there is some sexual violence and some, but there's not really so much physical violence. It's more just mental and emotional violence, but in less than zero, there's a lot of really, really, really messed up sexual violence, murder porn, people being forcibly injected with drugs and with, and both men and women are victims of this. But yeah, I, I agree. Like the, protagonist still has that detached he the protagonist in less than zero is witnessing he's literally witnessing his friends rape a 12 year old girl and he just leaves and goes and drives around and thinks about his childhood he's so self-absorbed and doesn't do he just he's just fascinated by seeing the worst because he's so empty and void of feeling inside maybe the reason why i didn't find this protagonist in Moshveg's work so repugnant is because she does and and the actions she takes when she's drugged out like she kind of goes into these blackout things where she where she does things without remembering them in a sleep state and in those sleep states she does do things that are nice that's how she ends up going to Reva's mom's funeral in the first place is because she buys her I think she even like bought her flowers or something so it said to me like deep down somewhere in the character, there is still some kernel of some redeemable quality. <laughs> I really, have to really remind deep you in there. that after she hands over the flowers, and this is the time I think we can talk about her friendship with Riva. Yeah. Yeah. She calls Riva in her mind, the most annoying person in the world. She says when she's looking at her and she sees her crying because her mom just died, she's never hated Riva more and then as Reva's in the midst of her grief, grief, she forces Reva to go into her recently deceased mother's closet to get our narrator's shoes to wear to the funeral because she hadn't brought any. So she's pretty depraved. Like, that stuff isn't as graphic, obviously, violent or sexual-wise, but that is deranged and abusive on, on a mental level to a friend, and uh, yeah. Reva seems to take it. And again, I read this as a way, like, when she was saying that stuff about Riva, I read it as she's saying that stuff to Riva, but she's really, she really is meaning that hatred to be towards herself because her, her own mother has died and she's, she doesn't let herself feel any emotion about it. So she's able to channel all of this repressed trauma into like her hatred of Riva. Again, I think that might be me reading into it. I think your interpretation is actually completely right, but this is how I felt when I read the novel and this is why I didn't Well, everybody, I, just, I mean, everybody connects so with everyone differently. And actually, I think what I think that reading reviews, that is why this novel has connected with so many people is because it's extremely extremely well written. It brings up a ton, like it gives smart people an outlet to think about Uh, all these interesting issues of like can you just numb out what is friendship how do you deal with grief and I think that the actual text is vague enough because it's being told via this narrator who is an addict and in and out of a coma there's a lot of room for people to read in whatever they see or whatever they want to see in the text which is good. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually was speaking to a friend who really resonated with the novel and many ways like she, her, you know, she had, she's from the East coast. She had a lot of connections to New York. So she knew there would be an, a nine 11 connection. And, 
And she said she read the ending as a very hopeful thing, like jumping into life, jumping into the unknown with eyes wide open, ready for it. And she found it to be very hopeful also. But yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that's why this novel has done so well. And I think Mashvegi even acknowledges that it doesn't belong to her. It, it's now become its own living entity. I, I think I got a little too deep into reading what she had to say about the actual writing of the novel. So if I were to go back and read it, I probably would absolutely see more. Of, I think you read it way more true to like how she intended it. <laughs> but it just, I mean, it, who's to say how it was intended or how you read it? You read it the way you read it. Her friendship with, with Riva was actually, and, and there's an interview at, the strand between Lena Dunham and um, Otessa Moshvag, where they both just shit on Riva too. It's so funny. I was like, wow, why does everyone hate this character so much? Because I actually felt a lot of sympathy and compassion for Riva. She obviously has a lot of issues with her bulimia, with her alcoholism, her mother passing away. I was like, why are we as readers also supposed to lack empathy and compassion for her? She's not she's not such an unlikable character she just has this uh, weak bone in her body where she just allows herself to be abused which I think is something that we should have compassion for and be rooting for her to like overcome that but I don't know yeah that precisely that precisely hits at what my issue with this book is and it distills it to a really literal um comparison is I have no problem reading a book where our unnamed main character hates Riva. Like, I understand that people hate each other for irrational reasons in life all the time. But when the omniscient narrator and the writer hates one of their characters the way that Moshfeg hates Riva, that's cool, but it's not something I want to pay $24.95 to spend six hours with. Like, it is dark. And in the Strand interview, Moshfeg said about Riva, I think she's being kind of facetious here. Like, I get it. But she says, she would be so annoying at Al-Anon. She's someone who's constantly seeking how to better herself in the most pathetic ways. And I had such a visceral reaction to that. Like, the fuck? How is she supposed to better herself in a way that, like, pleases you? Like, because... She just seems like a person who would, like, totally shit on everybody who, like, loves SoulCycle. And it's like, yeah, I get it. SoulCycle's really dumb. But, like, why why are you writing a whole book shitting on it then? Like, uh, it's so mean. (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. When they were talking about me. And and Lena Dunham was really into it, too. And they were, she was like, yeah, Rima needs to, like, she was the one who said, like, Rima needs to get herself to an Al-Anon meeting. And I, I like, but kind of like they were making fun of a friend who's going through a really hard time and they are getting pleasure from it. I was like, what is going on? And that's how I felt like the entire book was written. And I was like, it's written extremely well, right? Like it's written yeah. by the meanest girl in high school who's really smart, but just hates everyone for no reason. So I, yeah. yeah, like you are really good at roasting people, Moshfag, but like that is not an energy that I want to pay and take in a story from like woof it's just it's crushing I I can understand that too and I yes we haven't talked about Moshfeg's writing style but she's this is probably the best written most well-written book and Eileen as well like that I've read in a long time 
with the diction, the pacing, that just everything, like her messages, her themes, um, it, she's obviously very talented and she knows it, <laughs> which is okay. I think in some of her interviews, they kind of twisted her words around and chose bits and pieces to include that really portrayed a certain type of person. Moshbag once told an interviewer, I'm the most self-assured person I've ever met. Very arrogant at times, sure. I can't make a wrong move. I know what I'm doing. When Moshbag assesses her talent, she sounds less like a braggart than a guileless child, announcing what she perceives to be inarguably accurate. I've heard men much more frequently characterize their own work as superior, Clegg told me. I hadn't had that experience with women in the same way perhaps because society has rewarded men for such assertions and women not so much. So we seem to be in this kind of also this transition where like a lot of women in, in the States and in the Western world are trying to, rather than standing together and building up their own energy to create power and to create authority, they're trying to match male energy to create a sense of a power and authority and assertion. And they're imitating like that really superior condescending male energy that has been around for so long and rewarded for so long. And I don't really agree with that response, but I think that's what Moshbag is, is doing in a lot of her interviews. So she's a good writer and we, we can look at the work alone and say that, but, a lot of it now gets, and I've done this a lot too, like it's mixed in with the ego of the author. Yeah, if I you want to just really simplify this to its most base level, she's the Kanye West of the uh, white, <laughs> of the, you know, literary world of women. Um, it's like she oh has just God. immense ego and says a lot of stuff her talent can back it up but sometimes she still says some bullshit and she has to be held accountable for it but the writing is incredibly great she's she's a really good writer this book flowed so well I found myself thinking about it whenever I wasn't reading it but I did also think that it had some affectations um, and some things that were kind of thrown in just to be quirky or shocking that I just couldn't I found myself trying to wring meaning out of them and I never found a way to make it fit. Like there's a running, I don't know if it's a running gag or it's not really a joke, but her therapist, Dr. Tuttle, every time that they have a meeting monthly, she'll ask our narrator about her parents and never remember that her parents are dead. And she'll ask, how did your mom die? And our main character kind of gives her a different answer every time. I'm not really sure this said anything ultimately about the therapist or I, we never figured out why the therapist was always just forgetting it. Yeah. She was like a kook and incompetent, but she remembered other things. And then our main character is also obsessed with Whoopi Goldberg and always talks about how she's her hero and so comforting to her. And this just felt like one of those quintessential hipster things that's chosen at random to feel like so kooky and crazy. She's obsessed with Whoopi Goldberg, normcore, um, but it didn't really give us any insight into this character. And I didn't buy this character as somebody who would enjoy like Whoopi, who's a very warm presence on screen. I can't remember what she said. Someone in an interview asked her about that, and I don't think her answer was very 
specific. I'm trying to remember what Monstrike said about it. I think she did say something along those lines of like, yeah, because Ruby is such a, because she is such a warm, dependable kind of character. Maybe it's like a substitution for like a mother figure, right? You know, well, she should um, write that then in the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I kind of read that in the the VHS tapes, you know, I, I kind of read that at the VCR breaking and Trevor bringing over a DVD player and being like, this is the next new thing. There were a few moments where I was like, oh, okay, I don't really, you know, we're, we get it. We're in 2000, whatever. So I agree. And those were, I think those moments were few and far between. And they were also a little bit ambiguous enough. Like I just made a total interpretation on the Whoopi Goldberg thing. Like, they're ambiguous enough that the reader could be like, oh, well, I think this says this about the book, and she can get away with it. So, yeah, I, but I agree. I think there were a few hipstery things <laughs> like that that were a little bit distracting. But, um, yeah, what about, what about the setting, the fact that it's in 2000? We kind of have an idea that it's leading up to something related to 9-11. At least I did when when I was told like the setting is New York in 2000 and we could see the timeline of time passing. Um, what did you think about the ending? It took me a little longer to catch on. Um, but <laughs> I, no, you did though. Yeah, no, I, yeah, it's, I think it's supposed to be pretty clear that that's where we're headed. And actually it felt very kind of tortured. The writing felt tortured around, the year 2000 it it very much felt like a book that had been written to happen in 2018 and then retrofitted once she had the idea to end it at 9-11 obviously I can't actually speak to her process but what I mean is it would be all totally modern no feeling of 2000 whatsoever and then there would be like a list of headlines that she saw on the tabloids in the supermarket or it would be like she woke up and the debates were on every channel gore versus bush what a time um it just felt, <laughs> felt like there was very specific references sprinkled throughout rather than it being of a time and i guess to write about relatively recent history it's more difficult to like set a tone of it being the year 2000 but it felt a little effortful for me and then it ends, of course, with, with 9-11 and Reva has a job at the Twin Towers and, and she's killed. And the last line of the book is our narrator sees a beautiful woman in a silk shirt and high heels jumping out of the building. And um, she thinks it's a really beautiful sight is this woman jumping, knowing full well what she's doing. Her eyes are open and she's awake. So <laughs> how did you feel about the end of the book? I, I, the fact that it was just one page, I did, so I'm of two minds. Like when I first read it, I was, my visceral initial reaction was, okay, you're just using, all this buildup was just to use 9-11 as an element of your novel. I, I don't know. I just kind of felt like she was building up this time period all just so she could use that one element in that one scene. And it kind of turned me off from it. And then, you know, the, the diving into the unknown, she's a wide awake. Like, I, in the end, I, I took that as a message of, 
embracing the fact that you're alive because you don't know what's going to happen next in life and we should embrace it and not sleep through it, right? Like we should not try to turn ourselves and erase ourselves. We should be, we're alive for a reason and we should be embracing life. So I read it as like a hopeful thing in the end, even though it's seen through like this horrific, horrific event and she's watching. And I guess I didn't think about this. I didn't realize it at the time, but the woman jumping that she's watching is Reva. No, she says... She says she doesn't know. It's probably not Reva, but it looks like her. I don't think it's supposed to be Reva, is it? Well, the in the in some of the reviews, Otessa says it is. Well, she says there's something book. about. <laughs> she says there's something about watching Reva, whether it's Reva or not, jumping from the twin towers that somehow yeah, manifested okay. all of mind. the complex grief. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That she was trying to issue. Okay, yeah. So, okay, yeah, you're right. It's supposed to ambiguously, but the character, the protagonist, is projecting into the fact that it's like Reva. Okay, yeah, I misread that review because I didn't read it as Reva either. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things I really didn't like about the book, actually, was how it kind of led to this 9-11 ending. I closed it and I was like, really? Like, I kind of wish yeah. she had just ended on the pseudo-enlightenment <laughs> And to note. me, it was... It was a shock value thing not a shock value but something to to make it stand out to be a story that's different and as much as I've been pushing for like let's stick to the text this whole I have to read this quote from um, Mosh Feg on the ending of the book when she says I didn't feel like I was writing about a terrorist attack I was writing about loss and I'm sorry, this is a super dumb thing to say when you purposely chose the most like iconic and recognizable terrorist attack in American history. Like you obviously know what you're doing when you're invoking 9-11. Everyone has their own set of emotions and visuals that go with that. And you're writing about it to play on those existing emotions in people. That's fine. But don't say like, I'm not writing about 9-11. I'm writing about loss. Then write about something that doesn't have such pre-existing feelings and emotions in all of your readers. Like, I just hate when there's a intentional density like that to make yourself look more intellectual and, like, above it all. That was my initial reaction, too. And you said it in a much better way that I was like, oh, it's just one page on 9-11? Come on. She didn't need to include this, but she obviously made a very intentional choice to do so. Yeah, that was the main thing I I didn't like about the book myself was that was that ending. Well, let's I, <sighs> I think I think we're maybe both not clear on whether we liked this book or not. So why don't you start and <laughs> explain your yeah. feelings on whether you'd recommend this to others? Final thoughts. Okay, before I'm gonna try to remember how I felt about this book before I started researching into Moshfeg's like writing career and her own themes about the book. I read this book in two days and I was really lucky there was a copy of it at this hotel resort where I was doing a yoga class in Sri Lanka. So I was able to read a physical copy, which actually kind of makes a big difference for me rather than reading like an ebook. So it may have been like the setting I was in, but I was really in love with the writing. First of all, outside of all the themes, I was in love with her style her prose, her, her writing is just, it's really 
superior. It is superior, I guess. Maybe I shouldn't use that word, but like, it's really good. And it's really nice to read something that's so readable. And I was really enjoying finding those, those little pockets about emptiness and learning more about like, why is the protagonist like this? Why does she want to be void and empty of emotions? How did she become this really scornful, hateful person? So in the end, after I finished reading it, I was like, okay, yeah, this was a, I enjoyed reading this novel. This was a, um, it was well-written. It was a good novel to read. Since doing all of the research and, and reviews on it, I'm really fascinated by Otessa Moshvig as a writer, and I guess as a person, because she's so different from from me, And um, but yet I really re- responded to her work. And I just love the, her single-minded focus, too. I, I'm trying to think if I would recommend this novel <laughs> to people I know. I think I still would recommend this novel, yeah. I think it, even if the protagonist is so scornful and, and, and there is a lot of like unhealthy value attached to like beauty and appearance, I think it is a novel that does bring up a lot of questions and that the reader can find some insight in and just how they can relate it to their life. So yeah, I would still recommend this novel. Yeah, I actually agree. Um, This book was hard for me to I always like to like log things on Goodreads and assign a little stupid star rating and most things that I give three stars to are just middle of the road like Ugh, I won't remember this in six months but I had a good time reading it and this book I gave three stars but it's like the exact opposite of that experience it is both a five star read and I think the writing is five star quality the idea the premise is a five star premise super interesting brings up all these really different exciting ideas that are fun to think about outside of the text and then it's also one star for me because it made me feel like so awful reading it and I feel like the tone is so suffocating and negative and dark and there's no real point to it like it's just sort of miserable for the sake of being shocking and miserable and that is just like not something fun for me to read at this point in life and and reading so yeah I would recommend it it's like definitely super ably written um it's interesting it's unlike any other book you're gonna read this year and you're not gonna forget it in six months like I think I will remember this book for a very long time and it will stand out in my mind as a book that made me feel things very strongly but it was definitely more frustrating than a lot of the books I've read this year too the way you interpret the protagonist's tone might actually say more about you than it does anything. Like, you know, like, no, but in a good way, I'm just reading this as you were talking about how it made you feel. I'm reading this, this quite a quote from the Jezebel interview that, well, this is actually, she, she's talking about how her brother's, Moshevik's brother's death in November, 2017 Moshvik says about that a lot of my acerbic cruel wisdom seems really irrelevant now yeah and this is why I think she seems to have taken on a shift but it wasn't the case when she wrote this book and the reviewer goes or interviewer goes on to say that cruel wisdom fuels relaxations unnamed narrator a narcissist in pre-9-11 New York who pops downers like Tic Tacs and is brimming with insightful observations about life the people she associates with and pop culture are as precise as they are savage. Oh. Yeah. 
quoted. And then um, the character's intelligence and wicked sense of humor ultimately renders her charming despite her radioactive toxicity. That's wild that anyone would call that character charming. Mm -hmm. Like, that's Mm -hmm. truly, truly deranged. And I think that's, (laughs) honestly, that's a result of people who are paid to review books have an unhealthy emphasis on intelligence above human decency Mm -hmm. and that's super sick yeah (laughs) yeah no I agree and I don't think that's I don't think that Moshveg meant for her protagonist to be charming either you know like I don't think that she and she wasn't she and and that wasn't her intention so I don't think that she was intentionally putting anything the how do I want to say this she wasn't intentionally like trying to shroud this toxicity with charm she was just putting that toxicity out there like here it fucking is like and she says in her interview with the slate she says you're making you're but what you're saying makes me think that people are upset at me for not having a more righteous heroine and that maybe it reflected poorly on women in general which is totally ridiculous i reject that reading but you guys can think whatever you want. It's so silly, this idea that art is supposed to be like a substitution for the value system that your parents are supposed to teach you. <laughs> so, I, I mean, it's I just mean, like... yeah, dude, I'm not and I'm not condemning her morally. But like, no. I also as a reader and a consumer of art have the choice to like not engage with work that has that kind of a worldview because that doesn't make me feel good. But yeah, certainly yeah. I wouldn't dictate that her art can't have people or a writing style that's morally not aligned with what I get down with yeah cool so our summary is definitely check out this book if you haven't already (laughs) yeah check it out if you liked this novel I would definitely recommend her other novel Eileen it's a very similar like her writing is just superb and it's more plot like action based there's a lot there's a few more characters it it has that dual perspective of like a narrator who's looking back at her life as a young woman from where she's at now as an older woman it's it's fascinating it's a fascinating novel I think my year of rest and relaxation is better but definitely check this that out if you enjoyed this novel I'll also recommend Severance which we have a previous episode on because it's also like a young female protagonist in New York City trying to figure shit out and The Moviegoer by Walker Percy this is a bit older this novel it's about a man in New Orleans who feels really isolated he's also kind of on this search he's you know charismatic good looking and he has money so he has all of these kind of things cushioning him like the protagonist in this book and he is but he feels like this kind of emptiness this this longing that he is searching for something just like Moshveg's protagonist seems to be kind of trying to find something um, unattainable in this novel. What books do you recommend, Laura? I recommend Pretend I'm Dead by Jen Began, and it's a story of a similarly selfish and disaffected female protagonist who's kind of awful, and it has a really similar tone in that it's like kind of surreal and dark and a little bit gross out. And uh, she's a cleaning woman who falls in love with a drug addict she meets at a needle exchange called Mr. Disgusting. So it kind of has a weird satirical 
out there tone um, that I also got from this book. And then my other recommendation is the Robert Pattinson movie, Remember Me, which also inappropriately invokes 9-11 in the last minute and is horrible. <laughs> That's it. I haven't heard of that one. <sighs> Rent it. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I have to tell you, he's a substitute teacher, and you think it's set in present day for the whole movie, and then he writes on the chalkboard in the last scene of the movie, the date, and it's September 11th, 2001, and then the camera pans out, and you see the plane hit the... It's, like, despicable. (laughs) It's a love movie with him and Claire from Lost. It's wild. (laughs) Oh, my God. That sounds so bad. I'm actually intrigued now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for talking to me about this book. I'm shocked at how much in agreement we are after reading our notes, which were super different. Yeah, yeah. No, it was a good talk. Thank you all for joining us as well. And we'll see you next time on Forget the Wine. (laughs) 